0: Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2408. Today we're going to have some fun with some fascinating pedal cars, the history. Ah, oh, this is going to be a great ride. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today, I'm across the pond again. I seem to get over to the UK quite often this year in Stourbridge in the UK with a very special guest by the name of David Wiley. David, welcome to Cars Yeah! Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch?
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to be on your program.
0: Well, this is going to be fun because we are going to be talking about pedal cars near and dear to my heart because my first car was a pedal car. Uh, But before we begin, I do like to ask my guests this question. What's one little thing that people don't know about you, David?
1: Uh, One thing people may not know about me is that I guess, well, professionally, I owe my my place in in the world to my grandmother who was one of the last ladies who made nails, wrought iron nails in a, on an open fire. That was her job. And she didn't want her, her grandson to, to, to work in heavy industry. So she instilled in me that, that belief that, that education was the way out. And that's probably um, the thing that's got me to the place talking with you, really.
0: Wow. Well, that's fascinating. My goodness. (laughs) That is something. Well, very uh, nice lady to have in your life and to steer you down the path that she did. And of course, today we're going to talk about a fascinating and wonderful book that you need to have big biceps to pick up because of the size of this thing. Yeah. So let me give you a, a bit more proper introduction here, David. Dr. David Wiley is recognized as the world's leading authority on Austin pedal cars, living near the former Longbridge plant. And having close relatives who worked there, he developed a fascination with Austin cars from a very young age. And in the mid-1990s, David was fortunate enough to meet and interview the key members of the Austin pedal car team, which kindled his interest in the story of the cars even further. Following years of subsequent research, he has amassed an unrivaled Austin pedal car archive, and I can tell you from this book, he has. His previous book on Austin pedal cars has become much sought after, and his new book titled The Austin Pedal Car, a fascinating history of Austin's J40 and Pathfinder from 1946 to present day is spectacular. David has owned and restored several classic Austins and is an acknowledged expert and advisor for the rare Austin A40 sport, Sports and Austin's Atlantic Convertible. We'll be back in just a moment to learn a lot more about David and this book. But first, a word from our sponsor. So please give them a little love and we'll be right back. Buckle up. 9324 and protect the ones you love, like I did, with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at linkagemag.com. So, David, uh, I want to go back in time a little bit to you getting this fascination for this pedal car story and the history because it's massive and then i want to dive into this book because you would think a book about pedal cars would be small like pedal cars but this is far from that you take a really really deep dive so let's go back in history of where this passion of yours came from
1: well as i think i alluded to in the introduction my my family background is um we, we were not wealthy and uh, come from a long line of of people who who were working class and um, one of the things that used to happen every Christmas time was that my mother used to take me into the local city of Birmingham, which is right in the middle of England. If you got, if you made a dartboard and put a put a map of England on it, and you threw a dart into the bullseye, you'd hit Birmingham. It's right in the centre. Okay, heavy industry, but a big shopping centre. My mother used to take me in there, and I used to like going, but I used to also hate being. Um, Being told to to stand outside the clothing stores and wait to see what my mom was going to buy for Christmas for uh, for her own dresses and whatever. And part of the bargain was that on the way home, I could go to the toy shop and I used to press my nose against the window and wish for this great big red gleaming pedal car that was in there that I really desired. I didn't know at the time, but it was an Austin J40 pedal car. But it was the thing with working headlights, you know, a real bonnet, a dummy engine. And I just thought it was the king of toys that anyone could possibly want. And, of course, every time we went to Birmingham, you know, from the age of six up to the age of 10, I was pestering my mother to get one of these for Christmas for me. And, of course, they were too expensive. That never transpired. And so... Then fast forward to, I suppose, after I was married, I attended a, my first classic car auction, and I, I recognised in the auction what I could only describe as a, as, as, a, as a J40 for grown-ups. It was, in fact, an A40 Devon. And I just looked at it and I thought, that looks like that pedal car I always wanted. And then I discovered that it was actually the pedal car was actually based on that big saloon. So I subsequently bought that, um, and ran around in it as my everyday car, driving to and from work and taking the family around. Then when I had my own girls, uh, when they, that was the excuse then to go out and find the J40 that I never had as a child. So I made sure that my, girl, my own girls had one. And being close to the Austin factory in Birmingham, I mean, I'm literally nine miles away. Uh, quite a lot of these cars had found their way into the workforce uh, because the workforce could buy them at a reduced rate if they worked at the factory. Um, and so there were quite a few kicking around in sheds and, and, and in garden uh, storerooms and things like that. So I managed to buy one and, and I restored it. And then what happened, it was really bizarre chance of circumstance, really. I was at work and my father-in-law... And my my wife, they were phoned at home by the local free newspaper. We've heard that you've got these cars. Can we come and take some photographs? And um, to cut a long story short, my father-in-law and my big car and the J40 with my daughter in it were both appeared on the front page of the local free newspaper. The following week, I had a call from a gentleman who introduced himself as Jim Blakey. And Jim said, oh, I see that you've got one of the J40s. I said, yes, I have, because that's what the pedal cars are called. Their designation is J for junior, junior 40, as in as opposed to A40, which is Austin 40. Okay? Sure. Right. So that's how they get the, the name, the J40. So So it turned out. Which is, uh, you know, my unbelievable look that Jim was the original designer of the car. What? And he just (laughs) moved back into, he just moved back from working for General Motors for Vauxhall, which was the brand of General Motors in the UK. Right. Uh, he just moved back from their factory um, in the south of England up to his hometown of Bromsgrove, which, again, is literally five or six miles away. And he, start, he said, well, why don't you come? Re-? I started chatting to him about the car, you know, the pedal car. And he said, yeah, I, I designed it. Did you realize that these cars were built in South Wales by disabled miners? I said, no, I didn't. He said, why don't you pop around for a cup of tea, which is a typical English way of inviting someone around to your house. Right. So pop around for a cup of tea. And from then on, I think the story then escalated. So I met Jim, the designer. I then met one of the other three men in the design team who lived near to Jim, who I was introduced to, Alf Ash. So Alf, I was introduced to And I also met the family of the third man in the team. So my involvement happened purely by chance of me satisfying a craving to have a J40, but I couldn't fit in it, buying the big (laughs) parent version of it. And then purely by chance, it being photographed with my daughter in her pedal cars. And Jim took the opportunity to contact me. Wow. So I knew then there was a story to tell. I'd also previously written a book on Austin uh, during uh, relating to the period forty-five to fifty-four, which is the period I'm really interested in. And I'd been up to the Longbridge plant and I'd discovered the photographic archive, which no one had literally opened. It was a working archive, uh, a working set of dro- uh, cabinets with, with uh, negative packets in. And as they were working from job to job over the years, they just literally put the unused negatives into, into the packets. And I, I, I opened them up and it was a treasure trove of images. So I knew there were some images of the J40 prototypes in there. I hadn't copied them at that stage. So as soon as I met Jim, I went back and copied these images. So if I can just recap, I'd got the the bare bones of the story based on verbatim real-life evidence from the the people who were there. And I'd also got the first-hand original plate negatives of the original photos that were taken at the time by the professional Austin Works photographer. Wow. So, just to give you a bit of context, Austin is a was a big deal in the UK because it was so centrally located in in the centre of England, in Birmingham, in Longbridge. Obviously, after Herbert Austin had invented the the diminutive Austin Seven, which was the car for the the first car for the masses, and he'd made his fortune out of that, the Austin Motor Company was pro, arguably one of the biggest motor companies in the, in the UK at the time. So. I, I just got hooked on the story, and it's turned out, as you discovered, to be a story not just about this pedal car, but about why it was made and who made it.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's massive. I guess it would be like uh, digging for treasure, and you find one little box, and then under it's another one, and another one, and another one, and just more treasure keeps coming out. And all the story really needed to be told because what you've done in this book and the team you obviously worked with and our friends at Porter Press uh, who published this book, I mean, and the people at Austin Cars, it's just incredible. So let me ask you this. I always ask guests about inspirations in their life. But as far as the inspiration for you, I think you kind of gave away a little of the story of why you tackled this massive book.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the inspiration for me was that I can't think of another automotive manufacturer that's produced such a high-quality replica pedal car that's so close to the real thing, but more importantly, the reasoning behind its production. So the pedal car is just the manifestation of a desire to do some benevolent social benefit to people who had Served our country well during World War Two, and also subsequently after in the years after World War Two. So I think the desire there was to really—I never thought that the designers of the pedal car got the recognition that they deserved. While they were—they were—they were very modest men, very—and um, they were all men at that time. Uh, very modest men. And they never got the recognition that they deserved. And I always thought it was almost my duty, to, because I've been fortunate to be gifted all of these various contacts and photographs, to try and tell that story for the benefit of, and, and, and place it in posterity, posterity, really. That was my motivation. So at the time I published my first Slim volume, which I self-published, J40s were had very little interest. Uh, there was little interest in them. Uh, everybody told me I was I was mad to even tell the story. Nobody will be interested. Well, we sold two thousand copies within a year and had a reprint of a further two thousand. Um, so that really justified why why I did that small book. I thought I'll do a small book to go with a small car, but it's telling a big story.
0: Well, it is. It's massive. It's wonderful. I would assume then that you probably met up with a few challenges along the way because unraveling this onion of history, although you got a wonderful start with meeting the people you did and looking at the archives, but what would you say was your biggest challenge putting this book together?
1: I I think the biggest challenge for me was the, which actually time helped to unlock was the fact that there's a rule in the UK, and it maybe is similar in the US, that any government documents are locked for a certain period of time. So it, although they're placed in the national archive, they're not released because I presume that people who were involved in their their publication were, you know, sort of still at still alive and it's politically or or business sensitive. So when I was approached by Austin Pedal Cars Limited to, they wanted to reprint my original book. And I said, look, can't we do a book that I always intended to do? um, Because I think there's more to be told. And they said, really? I said, absolutely. And one of the key things that happened, this challenge, was that we could never get to the bottom of why the UK government had had sponsored the special factory that these toy cars were built in. And at the time in the late 90s, when I did my original book, those files were locked in the National Archive. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the time fast forward to, well, three years ago, um, I was able to go down to Q, to the National Archives, and, and, and get access to all of the letters where the British Board of Trade and the Welsh Development Agency and Austin Motor Company all communicated with one another. And I got that missing part of the jigsaw puzzle, which was around the setting up of the bespoke factory. Wow. Um, the other thing that I think's happened is, you know, in the intervening years, um, I know we can think of the internet and email as a um, sometimes as a bit of a curse to us, but actually... It's meant that I've been able to tap into a, a whole wider audience of uh, global Austin people, um, lots of help from Canada, from North America, from Australia, and from Europe, uh, because the J40 pedal cost you know, was meant to be a global product for Austin. Um, so so those, the key challenges, I think, one was, one was getting access to people which the internet has, has helped and 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 remote archives. So we found a great treasure trove in the Vancouver National Archives of of road safety use of the J forty. Wow. By their parks department. Unbelievable photos that are in the book. Yeah. And then the National Archive had kept these documents which were all tied up in red ribbon when I opened them. And I'm sure I was the first person to open them up since they were closed, you know, back in the 1950s. So it was great to, um, those are the two big challenges that I think time had had helped with. Yeah, it's it's a
0: fascinating story, really. It's almost like the title should be a big, big story about a little car.
1: You know, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, the thing is that I tried to get Porter Press to, to portray in the press release, this isn't just a story about the car. The car is fantastic in itself, in a way, because, it, as I said, it's a miniature replica of that A40 Devon, and it, it, you know, Jim just got the design spot on. It appealed to me as a five-year-old, and when you go down to Goodwood Revival, go to Goodwood Revival, which takes place in the south of England, which is which is a, a period three-day event, uh, all participants that go there dress in period clothing it's a total recreation of the 1950s and 60s when they introduced the J40 pedal car race there it showed that the children who look at the cars now time has not altered that design they still want to own one they still want to get in one so it isn't just their grandparents and parents saying you'll have to like this because I did the children genuinely want to get in because it's so cute and it just looks like someone might draw a car. You know? Oh, yeah. It looks like someone's interpretation of a car. So so that that to me is is what Jim got right about the J40. just just entrances people. And then layered onto that as I tried to get Porter to to articulate. Is the whole social engineering side of the scheme. So, Leonard Lord, who was the chairman of Austin Motor Company in '45, he had the idea that he wanted the returning servicemen from the war who might have been disabled, they might have lost a limb, they might have been what we call now post-traumatic stress disorder. We, you know, we, they, they would have mental problems. He actually pioneered what we now call as industrial medicine. He was the first chairman, certainly in the UK, to employ a senior consultant to look after these uh, returning servicemen and make sure they could contribute back into the Austin factory. They set up a special rehabilitation centre with adaptive, again, what we now call adaptive technology. They didn't call it that then. And this was to try and get these, uh, these returning servicemen back to improve their well-being after they'd gone through a traumatic time. So originally, he came up with this idea to use some of the scrap metal and scrap products from the main production line to build a kiddie's um, pedal car to, to get the disabled returnees back into the idea of working with metal, with bearings, with sewing stuff, all of those manipulative skills, okay? And the idea was that it would be part of the Longbridge rehabilitation scheme. But then what happened was that the UK government, which was a which was a Labour government at the time, and, and what they what they recognised was that there was a real problem in the in the, the the coal mining district of South Wales, which is to the to the west of Longbridge. And the miners who'd been working there mining anthracite coal really had a problem with, with lung disease because the dust was was infecting them. And they, they, they were, again, severely disabled. They were short of breath. They couldn't do any meaningful work. So they set up 10 factories. They were going to purpose-build 10 factories to provide them with alternate light employment. Um, the miners had been on an experimental scheme during World War II had shown that they could adapt to making aer- aircraft parts. So they were, they were capable of doing stuff other than heavy hewing of coal, hacking of coal. So the UK government set, built these purpose-built factories. Now, the people who were advising Austin on setting up their Longbridge rehabilitation centre said, we're setting these factories up. And the two came together in a synergy and Austin applied for one of the 10 factories. So they got a clean uh, canvas, a blank canvas, if you like to build a purpose built factory, which was, you know, probably 95, a hundred miles away from their parent factory in Longbridge, but it, right in the center of where it was needed. Cause these miners couldn't travel. They literally got out of breath traveling. So that's the, that's the bones of the social engineering side. So there's two aspects of it. There's the cute, wonderful car that the children love and to in, now love racing at Goodwood. And then you've got the social engineering side, which is actually trying to find gainful and meaningful employment for a group of disadvantaged uh, parts of our, uh, of our society.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, this is how the book got so big because there's so much more to it than just manufacturing toys for children. It goes so much deeper and so much more important uh, to help people. I mean, it's it's a fascinating and wonderful story. And I can't express to you listeners enough that if you love cars and those of us who love cars, of course, beckon back to our days of toys, my first significant toy car was my Garton Kidelak which was a pedal car that my uncle gave me. It had been his, so it was a little scuffed and worn, but I thought this was the coolest thing ever. It was yellow, and, you know, I could pedal around. I think I was, you know, two and a half or something like that. And, of course, you'll love this. My Also, my first most valuable, and I still have it today, toy car was my Matchbox by Lesney, another UK company that came and expanded, and it's a little Jaguar XKE my father bought me the day that he got his 49 MGTC. So wow. uh, a little bit of uh, British roots going on here. You know, I like to ask guests about special vehicles. And as I went into the story of your book, there's more than just the one car that we think of. Uh, there's some really cool models in there. I love the Paul Matthews Pathfinder. Now, since I'm, uh-huh. a, since I'm a race car guy, that yeah. struck my fancy. But if you looked at the cars that these guys manufactured, is there one that's a special one for you? Um,
1: well, they, they made two at the factory. They made the, the first one actually was the Pathfinder. So, what happened was they built the J40 prototype and they were worried that the miners couldn't build it because of the complex body shapes. And they were, they were concerned about the number of panels that were required to, to be assembled together. So, they asked Jim Blakey and the design team if they could come up with a simpler model to, to manufacture. And um, Jim used to uh, take his lunch break in the garage or uh, in the garage that they housed the Austin Historic Collection. And in there was the 1939 Austin Twin Cam race car. Yeah. And he used to sit in that with his lunchbox. Imagine he was racing at, um, at Crystal Palace or wherever or Donington. And when he had the notion, when he was asked the question, "Can you come up with a simpler design?" They decided to build the Pathfinder, which was based on that twin cam race car, because basically it was two halves of a two body halves put together with a bonnet, a simple shaped bonnet, and they thought that the miners would would have find assembling those a lot easier. Um, so the Pathfinder is a special car. The Paul Matthews car is. Is a real find for us because it's the very car that was used by Paul Matthews, who was the son of one of the original workers, to pedal the scissors to the mayor to hand to the oldest worker to open the factory. Oh, wow. And we thought that car, I've been searching for that car since 1999, and it turned up a year ago. Last October, wow! Uh, with all of the documentation, the other great find for us was uh, was the Royal uh, J40. Um, the Royal J40 was specially um, improved and finessed by one of the main Austin dealers, the uh, Carmart Limited, and it was donated to uh, Prince Charles, now King Charles and it was always rumoured that it existed, and it took us probably 18 months to track it down within the Royal Collection. They agreed to photograph it for us, and sure enough, it was his car, and it was as we got one black and white image of it from back in the day, an archived image, but it turns out to be this glorious deep green, a very dark green, Uh, it's trimmed in green hide, it's got as many extras on as obviously is deserving for a young prince. The only thing that's missing from the original specification is the, is the fitted luggage that was in the boot.
0: It had fitted luggage rather, in the boot. Oh my gosh.
1: We rather suspect that um, uh, the king's sister, Princess Anne, might have taken that to, to use, to but play we don't. With, yeah. it's, dis- it's disappeared. But those are the two big. Cars that um so Austin only made those two models. Um the third car of historic importance that turned up was I uh, I and I must I know we're running out of time, but I must tell you this story because it's like another piece of detective uh well it's just it's just one of those things that was meant to happen. Yeah. So when Goodwood decided to bring back racing J40s. They wanted to find out whether the, historically that had happened before. And in 1955, Austin did the first race at Longbridge just for the employees. And then they did—they took a big, um, well, you'd call it a semi-trailer with 20 J40s down to Silverstone Racetrack, which is an F1 race circuit now. Big, a UK. big lorry,
0: as you would say.
1: <laughs> a big lorry. Yeah, I was trying to. I was trying to use the uh, the, the US
0: yeah. Um, <laughs> semi truck. Yeah.
1: Yeah, semi truck. So they took these twenty cars and they held a race at Silverstone, going the wrong way down the start finish track, straight because it was a proper race at Silverstone. The program records the the speed, which I think was nineteen point five miles per hour. Um, which isn't bad for two little legs pedaling away. <laughs> yeah, pedaling very hard. <laughs> uh, and then and then it recorded who the winner was. And um, you're not going to believe this, but we managed to track him down. Whoa. And um, Ted French, Edward French, was presented uh, with his um, prize by the Le Mans winner, Tony Rolt, who was a UK Le Mans winner. And Tony Rolt. Uh, presented uh, Ted for winning the race with his own J40. So he was allowed to take his J40 home with him.
0: Oh, wow. How cool. Now,
1: fast forward to 2021, and we managed to track Ted down. I arranged to go and see him in 22 after the pandemic had eased up. And I go down to his workshop. He said, "Yes, you better come to the workshop because I've got photographs of me in the race and photographs of me being presented with the prize and the winner's laurels and the crash helmet and all the lot." Uh, and I thought, "That's great." He says, "Yeah, you can copy those. That you can have those for your book. Great." So when I got there, he said to me, and "You're not going to believe this." He said, "Would you now like to see the car?"
0: Oh, he had it still. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah.
1: And it was in the back of his workshop. And number nineteen, car number nineteen is in the book as found. It it's not been restored. Wow. It's as it was as it was back in nineteen fifty-five. Oh my gosh. And then just to finish the story off, following on from that, we also met the person who came third. We found him, um, Jeremy Rivers Fletcher. And we reunited them last year at Goodwood. They oh, wow. they met for the first time after all that, all that, and there was still you're going to love this because there was still a lot of teasing about who came first and who came third. <laughs> of
0: course, yeah.
1: So once once a racer, always a racer.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. You you've got to be very proud of what you've done here because. uh, uncovering all this history and and making something that was a little toy car so much bigger because it was and bringing that to us I I really tip my hat to you what makes you feel most proud about what you've done here
1: I think because I've been supported by the Austin Pedal Cars Company and Porter Press it's enabled me to tell the story that I always knew was there so it's been a real team effort. So I think what's made me most proud is working as part of a bigger team to to bring what you and thank you for your kind words. What you see in this book, it's got yes, it's got my name on the front, but there's you know there's my friend Lee Marshall who's helped me with all the research. There's Jamie Burnett and Mark Burnett from the Austin Pedal Car Company who've. Who are you know they're as they're as crazy about J40s as I am, and they've built a company around creating the parts for them. They've create you know they've even created a, a a modern version of the J40 called the Legacy pedal car, and they believed in the story as much as I did. So I met a team of kindred spirits who ena- have enabled me to tell this story and the professionals at Porter Press, you know having. Um, Steve Rendell as, as an experienced automotive uh, sub-editor who's been able to steer me through it and who badgered me to get the best quality images I possibly could because I just love the way the, the reproduction of the images is so good.
0: Yeah, it's spectacular.
1: I think that's been, that's been the real joy for me, the real privilege for me is working as part of that team to bring, you know, as I say, it's my name on the front, but it, actually it's a big It's a big team effort. The last, you know, one of the last things I'd like to mention because I've forgotten it earlier is that the third aspect of the story is that Austin, I mean, this is, to me, is incredible. We now take for granted professional development for staff and training and staff development. We take it as a corporate necessity, Mm -hmm. succession planning. We've got all these modern business you know, phrases that we that we bandy around. Well, transport yourself back in time to 1951 or 50, and basically that didn't exist. And what Leonard Lord recognised was that he'd got actually a factory building miniature cars, but it was a miniature factory, and it was a miniature factory that he could send an aspiring young man down there, To learn how to manage a factory And that's what happened They actually used the factory The Bargoid factory The pedal car factory As a training ground For their up and coming managers And um, I've become really good friends with him Mike Sheehan who who is in his 90s now Went down there as a young 20 something year old To run the factory He went on to be in charge of uh, production at Longbridge uh, Harold Musgrove went on to be in, in charge of Rover MG, and um, uh, another one of the managers who was down there, Dick Perry, went on to be manager of Rolls Royce. So it was there's a whole succession of them who were who went down there. So that third aspect is is really really crucial. Um, and then of course the last part of the story is. When the cars were built, they couldn't think of a name for the first one. They couldn't think of a registration number. And all the teams sat there, probably having a cigarette and a cup of tea, as typical of British workers at that time. And Leonard Lord was in there. And they were saying, look, we can't think of a registration number to write on the number plate at the front. And they, they, they threw out loads of ideas. And in the end, Leonard Lord said, we're going to call it J-O-Y-1, Joy 1. Joy 1. <laughs> and he said, because I think this is going to bring a lot of joy to the children who see it. So Joy 1 was the first car. Joy 40 was what, or Joy 4 was, was, was the J40. Joy 3 was the Pathfinder. So they were all called the Joy cars, and they were forever known that down in Wales. And when I go to, when I go to Goodwood, and I look at the children looking at the cars and peddling them. I can see the same joy that the design team envisaged all of those years ago, manifesting itself with those young children, you know, 70 odd years later. It's just massive phenomenon. And I'm just grateful that I've been fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time, have the right people who contacted me and having a great team from Austin Pedal Cars Limited and, and Porter Press who've helped me to tell this remarkable story. I, just, I, I, I know I'm biased because I've written the book, but I just think it's one of the most amazing automotive history stories that, that, that is around, really.
0: Well, serendipitous and a magnificent testament to uh, humanity, too, in a way that was really meant to be a little toy, but brought joy and fulfillment to so many people. You talk about the workers that needed something to do, and there's nothing worse than being an adult and feeling that you're useless and you can't produce or help or do anything. I've had many guests on the show before who had similar type stories in their own lives and thought that... They were at a point of despair because they couldn't contribute anymore, and they found a way to contribute back, more importantly, to humankind and to mankind by helping people. So it really ties this whole wonderful package into a colorful ribbon, uh, which is quite spectacular. Before I let you go today, because there's so much more, you and I could talk about this story for a long time, but I really encourage you listeners to get your hands on this. And With the holiday season coming up, us car folks are very tough to buy for just ask my wife, right? <laughs> what do you want for Christmas, a Porsche? Okay, what do you really want for Christmas, a Porsche? <laughs> um, is, get this book, because books are one of those things that still have importance in our lives, and car people, I think, like the tactile nature of touching books. Uh, the Austin awesome Pedal Car Story, uh, published by Porter Press, I'll put links onto David notes page so you can get your hands on a copy. This would make a magnificent gift for any Automotive enthusiasts in your life. Before I let you go, could you share maybe some parting words of inspiration, wisdom, a mantra of some kind that has meaning for you that uh, could add to this wonderful, flavorful story you've shared today?
1: I think that um, what I've learned from it is that a lot of the great things in life, and particularly in the automotive world, are established by people having a vision to do something. So having a desire and a vision to, to actually achieve something or design a, a particular vehicle and then to go about doing it. And I think sometimes in the current, it was easier to do it back then when you didn't have to go through committee, you didn't have to go through budget cycles, you didn't have to go through the corporate way of doing things. And the essence of what they did with the pedal cars and 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 the cars of that era was very much around that creativity that I'm sure is still there when people are designing on computers and I'm sure when they're working on their team on online designs it's all there. But the genius that was behind Porsche, that was behind Isigonus with the Mini, that arguably was behind Jim with the with the J40 and coming up with that shape, that design. I just hope we don't ever lose that because cars are, I don't know about you, but cars are looking very much similar now. They, they're they based on similar platforms. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like you, I'm an absolute car nut and I do like the, I do appreciate the individual design of some of these vehicles. That That's my, that's my thing that I hope we don't lose.
0: I agree with you. Yeah, I, I say that quite often when I'm in a parking lot walking into a store and Everything looks the same. You know, I know there's little differences, but there's every once in a while a car and even a new car, but usually it's an older car for me, that I stop and look at and it stands out. And there are some manufacturers these days that are striving, I think, to do some of this to... Bring back some creativity, ingenuity. But yeah, there's so many regulations now and, and designed by committee and
1: you look at some of the iconic cars that have stood the test of time, you know, I can see you you're you're obviously a Porsche fan. Just you know, a little bit. And you know, the mini uh Volkswagen Beetle. We've
0: had those. <laughs> yeah, and they went
1: they went on throughout their production. You know, they they changed ve- I mean the the 911 still still recognizable from its early shape, isn't it? Right. You know? Yeah, uh, and the Mini exactly the same uh the VW Beetle, the, the the Fiat 500, the Cinquecento, the the same those classic vehicle and the J40 never changed. They never altered the design of it. And as I said earlier, you know you know, I was down at Goodwood in September 2023, and the, the children were still fawning over it. And you can see now, if you go to a classic car event, you get the iconic vehicles, you know. Um, I'm not a great exponent of the, of American cars, but, you know, Ford Mustang, the Ford Model T, the Model A. I, I'm sure there are loads of Chryslers as well. I've, I'm probably going to upset some of your <laughs> listeners by not mentioning every single American manufacturer, but... You know there are certain key key vehicles that have that something special, and I think the J40 pedal car is, I would argue, is probably the king of pedal cars because of it, because of its. It's just got so much on it. I don't think I ever seen another pedal car with pneumatic tyres, working horn, lights, dummy engine, spark plugs, leads. Leather upholstery, steer. You know, uh, I mean, I could go on and on. Matching luggage in the boot. (laughs) Oh, it's just, it's just. As an expression in England, it's bonkers. It's crazy, really. It was, it was one of the. uh, Again, you know, if you got the accountants ruling the roost then, and the cost people, they would never have done it. What, what, what was it? uh, My question back, rhetorically to your listeners, is what was it that made? some of those iconic cars we've just mentioned, what was it made them so special? Because I, I never really found the answer for the J40, but it's got something in it that's almost the essence of of the designers. There's part of their spirit in there that anytime anyone looks at one, they grin, you know, they want to they get it. The kids want to get in it. I'm the same if I see... Uh, a very early Mini. I just want to go and sit in it. Probably you're the same with a Porsche. There's just something about the car that just gets something stirred inside your soul that you want to get in there. And I just hope we never lose that in terms of modern design.
0: Well, perhaps for this story, the reason behind this model is its true meaning of why it was created. And a lot of it had to do with now that you've shared it, helping people. And if you think about the Mini Cooper or the VW Beetle, these are cars that were meant so that a mass of people could afford the Model T to go and drive. And not just for the upper echelon of society, the elite or whomever, they could get out and be free. And that's what the car is all about, is freedom, is getting out of the road and going someplace and enjoying uh, the experience of getting there uh, and being there. So, uh, how can uh, can people follow along with you in any way? Are you active out there in the social media world, or uh, are you like many of my authors, uh, you hide away in your writing studio? Um. Well, no. That the best,
1: the best way to to track what, what I'm going to do in terms of J40 is through the Austin Pedal Cars Limited website because we're going to be putting some 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 blog posts and some news posts on there, especially as the reviews hopefully for the book come through. We, we'll be doing some some stuff on there. But social media wise, I'm still sort of semi-retired, semi-working, so my professional social media account is usually around. My alter ego, my work ego, which is education technology, but I do sneak in some uh, some posts on there on Twitter. It's at Dave Y D A V E W H Y. So if anybody wants to follow, I do sneak in some automotive tweets in there. Although you will come across some of my education technology ones as well.
0: There you go. Awesome. That's great. I want to do a shout out to our friends, uh, Louise Gibbs at Porter press for getting us together and Paul garlic at tonic collective for getting us together. I really appreciate that. David, this has been a fascinating journey. Uh, what, what, What car person doesn't smile when they think about a pedal car? And now I believe people will think about this particular pedal car in a very different light. A much more, not that it wasn't positive, but a much more positive light for what backed all this up. I can't thank you enough for writing this book. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you, hopefully in a pedal car somewhere down the road.
1: Well, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on. And one thing for your listeners to remember is that 60% of the output of the J-40 factory up until 1956 went overseas and the majority of the output went to the US. So hiding away somewhere are a lot of J-40s So get out there hunting is my advice.
0: Uh, That sounds like wonderful advice. What a wonderful thing to find. And I've got two little grandkids now. Wouldn't it be great to find one of those for them? That would be cool. We can
1: help you restore it if you find it.
0: There you go. I appreciate that. David, this has been spectacular. Thank you so much for sharing this book. Wonderful. No problem.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: You're welcome. 20, 50, or 100 years from now, Will there be a workforce to care for the collector vehicles we love? With auto shop programs disappearing across the country, it's a question we enthusiasts have to ask. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these vehicles aren't lost to time. One of the many ways RPM, which is short for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, is accomplishing this goal is through workforce development initiatives. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of the collector vehicle skills trade, visit RPM Foundation today. They're one of the charities of choice here on Cars Yeah! Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun.